Let's talk toys, characters, and animation. You're a voice actor. You're an entrepreneur. You're a VOpreneur. Welcome to the Everyday VOpreneur Podcast, your guide through the business of voiceover. Growing a voiceover business today looks different than it looked a few years ago, when you could get a couple of agents and a couple of online casting profiles and have everything that you needed to succeed. Now you need to know how to market. You need to know how to make connections and build relationships with those people. You have to learn how to put yourself in front of buyers. And that's what you can learn at VOpreneur.com through a number of different channels, including this podcast, Free Advice Friday, private coaching sessions, and premium video classes. Your guide through the business of voiceover is VOpreneur.com. The Veopreneur Podcast. Hey, it doesn't suck. Not as funny as Conan. Not as cute as Seth Meyers. Not as smart as Colbert. But he's one of us, and that counts for something. Here's Mark Scott, the original everyday Veopreneur. Ask a group of 100 voice actors what genre they dream about doing, and I'm going to guess that 80 out of 100 are going to say animation. We grew up watching cartoons, so really it's no surprise, not to mention the coolness and legacy factor of having your kids being able to watch your characters on TV one day, but how do we get the work? Do we need to be in L.A. to get the work? Is animation a realistic genre for most voice actors? These are all things that I believe that my guest today will help us answer. Her credits are impressively long and vast, and she's built them up across many genres, including animation, gaming, and toys. In addition to being a successful voice actor, she's also a founder of the GVAA, where she continues to assist voice actors through coaching. Welcome to the show, Christina Malizia. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Mark. So according to your LinkedIn profile, as near as I can tell, you were getting on the bus after kindergarten and heading straight to the studio to start recording. Is that is that a relatively accurate? Uh... It kind of is, actually. Um, yeah, I started very young. I was about I was like eight. I was about eight or nine. And both my parents are performers. Okay. They were very much uh, like the starving artists. So I grew up, uh, you know, and and we were again. It was starving artists, so there were just there was not a lot of money, um, and so they really couldn't afford childcare <laughs> all that much. So I was taken to all of the gigs, and uh, you know, by the time I was two, they were just like, "Here, kid." They just put me up on stage with them. They're like, "Just shake this maraca," you know. So I'm up there. I'm like two, just shaking the maracas. So it was just like, you know, that was my life from the beginning. Was just like three part harmony was a game. You know, there was. Wow. They would just like there was instruments everywhere. And if I showed any interest, they'd get all excited and they were like, oh, you know, so I know how to play piano. I know how to play flute. I can play some percussion. I can, you know, like there's just because it was just all around. So I grew up in a performing family and my mother decided that she wanted to try to get into voiceover to try to supplement the the income. And um, and she was able to get an agent and she's bilingual. Um, both my, my father's from Peru, my mom is from Mexico, and she's perfectly bilingual English-Spanish. So she got an agent and she started going on auditions. And one day I was just going with her and I was in the waiting room and they came out and they said, oh, you know, um, actually we were looking for a kid for one of these roles. Does your daughter want to try? And um, so I went in and I booked the job. And I had never done it before, and the casting director on that project was Ned Lott, who went on to be the casting director for Disney Character Voices and Miyazaki. <laughs> so, no, no, no minor connection to have in your network when you're eight years old, right? Like, 
And I, I recorded something as recently as, you know, just uh, like six months ago or a year ago with, with Ned and we're still in contact and it's, it's, we get a real kick getting to kick out of getting to, to be together um, so many years later. And I thank him for my career because it was because of him that, you know, this really all began. And there were, there were a few other people too, but my mother also recorded uh, several children's albums for music for kids. And she would bring in like a chorus of kids to the recording studio okay. to record. And of course, I was there too. So we'd all be singing whatever the kid's song was. And I guess uh, various engineers would point to me, to my parents and say, who is that? And they were like, oh, that's, that's our daughter. And they said, oh, does she want to try some other stuff? And nice. So that's how that happened. And it was really interesting because I actually had a very heavy lisp when I was little. <laughs> like, it was quite significant. Okay. <laughs> but when you're really little, it's not, you know, it's it's just cute. It's yeah, not like it, a, yeah. yep. it's, it's not a, a, a barrier uh, to your career. So I just want to say for everyone who feels like, oh, no, I can't ever do anything because I have a speech impediment. I had a speech impediment, a quite serious one. And, you know, hard work and dedication and you can, uh, it's not necessarily a barrier. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about that. What did, were you, did you see a speech therapist or was it just doing it every day or like, was there anything in particular that helped you to overcome that, that particular struggle? Actually, I started getting teased. I don't want to get teased anymore. <laughs> I, so I was gonna... like, someone called me. I was like, I think I was, um, I think it was 11 or 12 and I went to a new school and they started calling me Sylvester. <laughs> They're like, hi, Sylvester. And I was oh. like, what? I was like, I didn't even know I had a lisp. <laughs> I had no clue. I'm so devastated. How cool is it to look back now and be like, you know, go to your high school reunion now and be like, yeah, look at look at what I did now, right? Like, <laughs> well, and it was funny because like I I had already done voiceover for for many years at that point, and I was like, no one told me that there was an issue. Um, that's when I started trying to work on it, um, and then when I went into commercial work in my 20s, I had to really like really clean it up. And so I did actually work with a dialect coach. Um, and then okay. later, um, even now, I work on it a little bit with my speech pathologist. And actually, there's also an aspect of that. I'm bilingual, so I speak English and Spanish. I grew up speaking both languages. And the S in Spanish is stronger than in, in English. And so part of it is also the fact that, you know, the pronunciation in Spanish, has a, it just has a stronger sound with S. Sure. So part of it was also bilingual things. So um, anyway, that was just kind of a random tangent. But. <laughs> So talk about what you're doing all this stuff when you're a kid, you're going into these auditions with your mom. Is this in L.A.? Um, no, uh, we were in the Bay Area. Okay. So I grew up in Oakland, California. And so this was all in the San Francisco, Oakland, Bay Area. And, you know, I really only did, you know, I did that first audition. And after that, I didn't audition. They would just call me for work, you know, and this was... I mean, again, this was the time before really the internet yeah. explosion yeah. of everything. And so, you know, I'd, I'd grown up performing. So I was not shy at all. They're like, do be a monkey. And I'm like, sure, I'll be a monkey. Because it was just like it was I had grown up just yep. doing whatever. Don't know anything different, right? Right. It was very natural for me to just perform and be silly and be big. And I sing. And, you know, that was a valuable uh, skill set. And I'm bilingual. I speak English and Spanish. And so you know, I was like a, a little a little unicorn because I wasn't shy. Would, you know, it wasn't a lot of work to get it out of me. And, and I had these extra skill sets. And because of that, you know, like word got around and then they just people would just call me. And so I was actually very spoiled because I never auditioned for anything until I got to like in my 20s and I got my first agent. And I was like, oh, my God, auditioning is really hard. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I like the way that it was before. <laughs> I was like, this is really hard. And then I had to learn audition technique. And that was a whole, 
other thing. But um, but I really grew up in a kind of a bubble. I had no idea that, you know, I thought it was a fun way to miss school. I mean, it was. was. It, it was. It was yeah. an excellent way to miss school. And that, you know, we'd go get ice cream with my 20 bucks my mom would give me from the job. And, you know, that was that was it. I didn't really think anything of it until I got to college and I, I went across the country. So I didn't have any voiceover clients there. And I had to get like a normal job. And I, I was working at like Starbucks and like Jamba Jukes. And I was like, this is this is not very fun. Um, I would much rather be in the studio. <laughs> When people are mean in customer service, they are not kind. And I was like, what am I doing? What were some of those early jobs then? Like, are we talking like local commercial type stuff or are we talking like broadcast animation? Like, what were some of those early things that you, that you had the good fortune of uh, walking into? First stuff I did, everything I did was toys. Okay. So toys and games and, and really toys during that time. This was really kind of before the, I don't know how to, what word to de- describe it, but sort of the technological revolution. I mean, this was before cell phones. And so, you know, toys and electronic toys were very cool. That was the thing. And so there were a lot of toys that talked. Um, And so, you know, all I would do is just all this stuff where it's like, let's play. Great job. You did it. You know, it's all that, you know, can you find the red square? So I did a lot of little bears that talked. I did a lot of like, you know, singing toys, you know, just all just toys, 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 toys. That was pretty much it. And then toys that are like more like games for like preschoolers and yep. like, you know, depending on the age group. And so all of that kind of uh, material, early, early education stuff for kids was was really what I did. I had somebody that I was coaching two years ago who was interested in getting into the toy space and they were trying to figure out where to start. And that was right at the time that my baby was born. And all of the toys talked and sang and whatever. And so I'm literally taking pictures of the tags of the manufacturers and sending them off and saying, find somebody at link on LinkedIn that works at this place. Find somebody like all these toys talk. They all sing. They all make noise. Like somebody's got to be recording this stuff. And and she reached out to some people and actually did ultimately end up landing a job that way. So it's nice to know that that, that opportunity is still out there a little bit. So, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, let's get a little bit more into the toy credits because I know you've you've done Mattel, Fisher-Price, Hasbro, Leapfrog, all, all the, the names, all yep. the names, right? Yeah. So you started doing these when you were eight, nine, 10 years old or whatever, you're going to the studio with your mom, but you continued right. to do these throughout or are you still doing, where, where are you at with toys now? So I did toys, I mean, and toys was still the bulk of my income. So it was, you know, eight years old through about age 30, I would say. So that it was literally all toys and games. And then I expanded into video games in my 20s and a little bit into commercial work. But toys was still the bulk of my work. Um, In the Bay Area, uh, right where I was from is uh, Leapfrog. Leapfrog is in Oakland. And so there's a ton of toy work because of Leapfrog being there. There was another company there called Creativity, and I actually ended up working at Creativity um, as their talent coordinator, and I did their casting and voice directing as well as being an in-house voice talent for them. That was actually the coolest thing ever because I I used to work with them, and then they offered me a job, and um, basically they paid me to be a salaried voice actor. Okay. Um, so they paid me a flat fee per week, and I would record as much as they wanted me to record for everything that came in. And so I got to audition for everything, things I would have never seen, you know, if I had been getting it from an agent. So that was one of the best experiences of of learning, just playing with my range, just doing things that, you know, just would be not typically sent to me. 
But anyway, sorry, Creativity, where I worked, they did uh, music and sound production for toys. That was their specialty. And so that's really how I got exposed to so many different clients in the toy world, because Creativity would produce music, sound, and even game uh, design and invention ideas to Hasbro, to Mattel, to Leapfrog, to MGA, to Play Hut, to Play Along, sorry, Play Along Toys. Um, you know, the list goes on and on, Fisher-Price. So, um, and that was actually how uh, there's... Uh, there's uh, basically companies like that will present ideas to these major toy companies. They, they'll present their inventions um, in these invention meetings. And Mattel will be like, oh, we love it. We'll buy it. And then, okay. you know, they go and they produce it. And there's voiceover that has to go into those invention products. It's like the pitch work, basically. Yep. And so that was one of the main things I did was basically I just did demo vocals for invention products or I would do demo vocals for like Dora the Explorer. Like I would do like all of the stuff and then they'd have the real talent come in. Like I'd be her guide vocal okay. kind of thing. Um, so uh, so I would go through all the revisions of the song. And then when they finally had the song done, then they'd hire the the final talent to come in. So this was while I'm only doing demo vocals, it was tremendous training for animation because sure. you're having to match the quality. You know, you had to try to get close to the quality of these huge animation characters. And so, uh, again, it was a, it was a fantastic exercise in, in training for animation later. And, and so that animation was a very natural transition for me because the style is, is very similar. Toys are very big, very exaggerated, and then having to do so much sound-alike work for these big animation characters. With the toys, I mean, in the early in the early days, obviously you said this is before everybody's doing things on the internet. So you, you know, you're in the studio, they get to know you. My guess is once they get to know you and know how you work, you're a natural call because they don't have to worry about what's this experience going to be like, how's the session going to go, whatever. So I'm sure there's a certain amount of work that comes from that. Then you said you got on with a with a company who brought you in house to do a lot of this stuff. Is toy work something that where where else does it come from? Does it, like I've never seen a toy audition. I don't think through an agent. Does it come through agents? Is it something that you would go and find on your own? Is it an online casting thing? Like if somebody was looking for that, is it really just going directly to the companies? It can be. You know, one of the I think one of the best ways is actually approaching these production companies that create music and sound for the toys. You know, companies like Creativity, again, you can approach uh, companies directly. That is an option. You know, the toy world, um, I have seen auditions for toys through agencies, absolutely, especially when Mattel and Fisher-Price and Hasbro were doing um, more projects. But the world of toy voiceover has very slowly, well, actually not slowly, but quite surely <laughs> gone to non-union, you know, and it was primarily non-union even you know, 15, 20 years ago still. But yes, I have seen auditions come through agents, but I do think a lot of this work is really just, if you're passionate about it, is, you know, finding these production companies, finding these rosters that, you know, provide, um, that are, you know, again, maybe near a toy center like Leapfrog, you know, Hasbro in New York, um, all of the above. And and it's it's really, you know, doing your own research in that aspect would, would do it. But by getting an agent that is near you know, like, so stars, the agency, they get a bunch of leapfrogs auditions, Okay. you know? So again, if you get an agent that's near the toy, you know, producer, that's also another way that you can. But toys really went through a huge shift in the industry when cell phones came out because suddenly kids didn't want electronic toys. They wanted cell phones. And so everything, the toy world went through a really difficult time and a lot of companies went under 
Um, and so um, many, many companies were really struggling to, to find a way to continue forward. And a trend you'll notice now is that almost all the toy companies that have survived have branched out into animation. Um, now they create animation to sell the toys. So Bratz has its own animation show now. You know, right. ba- Barbie started, they did animation. You know, yep. Winks, all of these toy companies, they realized that they had to create animation in order to sell the toys um, the same way. And so that was what the toy companies did to, to really, you know, to come through that difficult period and then expanding into things like apps and computer programs and things of that nature. I was going to say, I would think that apps is probably one of the areas. And, and I say with a, you know, two and a half year old running around the house who sometimes I think her comprehension of the English language is better than mine. And I think it's because <laughs> She does spend a, a little bit of time, you know, playing some of these games on the iPad or whatever, and every one of them talks to her. And it's funny, I, I one of the apps that she plays with the most, I coach the voice actor who does the voice for it. And so I get to tell her all the time about how excited Kaylee is when she hears her voice or whatever. But it seems like that would be a natural area if you've if you've done toys or want to do toys, the app space, the children's learning app space would be another one of those places I'm guessing you you want to explore a little bit, right? Yeah. And actually, most of my work that was toy work shifted over into the app world. And so I started doing lots of little apps for different companies. And it's all like the, ooh, can you find the right hat? (gasps) That looks beautiful. Great job. Wait a minute. And it's all the, you know, and you're guiding them through them drawing or matching things. I still do some of that. And uh, yeah, that's one of my, and those companies are all over the place. And those are definitely companies you could reach out directly to and try to try to work with. You know, David Rosenthal, he worked for a company for a long time and he just did all the casting for the app. So, you know, depending on, you know, different casting directors will help. Um, there, there's probably work on pay to plays too, to be honest, because again, toys and apps do tend to be lower budget. You know, they're not high paying work, sure. but they are fun. Yeah. And I, I do honestly think they are tremendous training for animation, if that is a passion of yours as well. I talk a lot about the importance of email marketing and how I have used email marketing to grow my own successful voiceover business. But there are a lot of other ways that you can put yourself out there. There are a lot of other ways that you can make your business known. There are a lot of other ways that you can connect with potential buyers of your voice. And that is what my latest class, Marketing Outside of the Box, is all about. Let me teach you 10 different ways that you can market your voiceover business that don't involve finding cold leads and sending cold emails. Does that sound like a class that's of interest to you? The 60-minute class is available for the low price of $47, and it's available now for purchase at veopreneur.com. Just click on the store button. Go to veopreneur.com, click on the store button, and look for marketing outside the box. You'll get instant access to start watching right away at veopreneur.com. Now, back to our show. So I want to go back a minute to, I want to talk about relationships, because you mentioned meeting, you said Ned Lott. Yeah. uh, When you were like, eight or nine or something, and still continuing to have a relationship with him to this day. Talk about the importance of of those relationships, because I think that's one of the things we, sometimes I think in voiceover, we get very transactional, right? It's, it's a client who sends us a script, we record it, we send an invoice, move on to the next transaction or whatever. But it sounds like relationship is a pretty big part of how you've built your career. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's actually, it's probably the hugest part of, of how I work. And I think a lot of that just has to do with I mean, everyone has their own sort of personality traits and your own, you know, things that are important to you psychologically for 
for whatever reason. But for me, relationships are everything. Friendships, you know, romantic relationships, family relationships. And I'm a very, I love people. Like I just, I love people. I love being with people. I think they're fascinating. I just feel energized. And when I get to connect with someone on a really deep, authentic level and share our lives and, and in whatever capacity that happens, whether, you know, I'm coaching them or they're coaching me or, you know, we're just friends over whatever or colleagues or, um, or if it's a director, like I just, I live for those interactions. It's, it's what makes the work really, really special to me because I feel like Everybody does their best work more when you're all comfortable and when there's these deeper connections and because there's also a level of, of honesty and transparency where you're just being yourself that's yep. more real and then everyone's more comfortable. And um, and then, you know, you can be more real about stuff that's going on in your life. But yeah, so that's it's just a, it's something that's hugely personal to me just because of, of who I am and a, a bit to do actually with how I grew up. Um, I grew up very isolated and parents split when I was 14 and we had no family. I had no family at all, like no grandparents, no wow. cousins, nothing. We were completely isolated. So I had no support structure. And so I just grew up like feeling very alone all the time. And so when I, you know, got out into the world and when I, you know, the older I got, the more I realized I could make more of these important connections. And so it's just a huge priority in my life. And so it because of what I experienced when I was little. So that's why it's always been a priority for me. Um, it, and I guess makes, that's done well for business, I guess, I, uh, but not, well, but not on purpose. It's just, no, but it, it makes a big difference. Right. And, and I mean, I, I love the fact that I've got clients that I've been working with for 10 or 12 or 15 years or whatever. And, you know, we talk to each other about stuff outside of voiceover and it's, it's nice to have that so that it's not just a transactional business thing. So in your twenties, you go to LA, is that when animation starts where, when does that transition take place? I had been doing toys for a very long time and video games and just games, toys, games, toys, and a little commercial work here and there. And basically, long story short, I had a terrible accident when I was 25, just devastating accident where it was just like it just destroyed like me physically. And uh, nobody could figure out several aspects of what had happened. And I was just like seeing doctor after doctor. And I was struggling to hold down out, you know, work outside of voiceover. Voiceover I could still do because it didn't require, the sure. physical, you know, my body and or like standing at a counter or having to do and, you know, like that. But, you know, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to just do voiceover full time because I can't use my, like I, I yep. literally can't hold down some of these other jobs that are more physical. And I couldn't even type. Like I had, I had injured my arm so badly that I, I couldn't type for more than 15 minutes before my whole arm would uh, freeze up. I ended up with, I had a spinal injury and I tore my rotator cuff and it and a lot of nerve damage in this area. Um, so I couldn't even do like a sitting job that was administrative. I, I had no options. And I had been doing voiceover part-time for my entire life. And I was like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go full-time or something because I can't, you know, I, I can't do anything else. Like this is, you know, um, and gloriously, uh, you know, the, the light shone from above and um, Mattel heard me on a toy invention product in an invention meeting for a baby doll product. And the casting director for, for all of Mattel was like, who is that? And, you know, the invention company said, oh, it's this person. And they tracked me down to San Francisco 
And they said uh, they had me do a number of auditions, and then they hired me for like $12,000 worth of work. Wow. And, and this was in 2000 and, yeah, this was in 2010, I think, okay. 2010, 11. And they were like, we're going to fly you down, and we're going to have you record a bunch of dolls for us, and it'll be about $12,000. How does that sound to you? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> At the time, I was the living. Time, like, yes, please. I was like, oh, my God. I was living in such a desperate situation. It was like wow. I, I, was ha- I was really, really struggling. Like, it was terrible. It was a terrible time. And so it just was like it was such a – a gift. And then I was like, okay, I need to move to LA because I need to be near Mattel. I've been doing toys forever. Mattel and I are meant to be. So I was like, okay. And then, you know, I realized also at the same time that I had been doing toys for so long. And, you know, even though I enjoyed toys, the income with animation was more, it was union, you know? And um, I also realized that given the physical issues that I was having, that I needed to change my business plan because I couldn't keep doing these small gig after gig things because I had honestly really serious health problems that sure. I needed yeah. to take care of. I needed insurance. I needed, you know, and this was before the Affordable Care Act. So I literally couldn't get insurance. Companies kept turning me down. And so I was like, I have to transition into something that is going to be more sustainable for me to, to, to have a life. And I had dreamed of animation the way everybody does, where it just yeah. seems so far away. It's like that yeah. seems not possible, you know. But when this thing happened with Mattel, I just really was like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move to LA, and we'll just see what happens. And I was like, you know, I, I made a New Year's resolution. I wrote down, I was like, if I could do anything, what would it be? And I said, I want to record for Cartoon Network, Disney, and Nickelodeon. Those are my, that was my goal. Okay. I was like, that's my big goal. So I used my twelve thousand dollars and I moved to LA and I recorded for Mattel, and then I emptied my four hundred one k that I had uh, put together after working for six years at the production company. I think I had like $44,000 in there. And I emptied it because I was in such terrible shape health-wise that I was like, you know, dad, I don't, there's no point in the 401k if I don't get to the 401k. And, And to let you know how dire it was, like I was 86 pounds and my hair was falling out. It was really severe. I was really, really ill. And it turns out that I have Graves' disease, and it was also, you know, it was, I had hyperthyroidism that got triggered by the accident because of the stress. So there was all these things going on, but I couldn't even get health insurance enough to, to figure out what was wrong with me. So um, so I was like, okay, I'm just going to, whatever happens, you know, I'm going to just, this is the money I have that, you know, I'm going to empty the 401k, I'm going to use the $12,000, and whatever happens, let's just go for it. And that's what I did. And, you know, I got really lucky. I got an LA agent, which was amazing. And then, you know, I, I wasn't booking a ton in animation yet. I booked like, you know, maybe two things. But then my agent, I was with TGMD Talent originally, and my agent went over to AVO Talent and I went with him. And, you know, he, we had an honest conversation and he said, Christina, he said, I'm going to be honest, you know, at TGMD Talent, you weren't making me any money. <laughs> He said, yes, again, honest conversation. He said, but he said, but he said, I felt like it was because you weren't getting the animation shots that you deserved. And so he said, I feel that AVO talent, Sandy is going to be amazing for you. She has the connections. She has all of those relationships. And I think that's going to change for you at AVO talent. And it did. (laughs) <laughs> was there anything else specifically that you were doing to prepare yourself for this animation? Or was it just the fact that you started when you were eight, you were the way that you were as a kid, you know, not afraid, willing to try anything, 
grew up in the studios doing all these toys. Was the toys the training? Were there were there other steps that you took along the way? I think the toy work was a huge part of the training, just in terms of what I would say, bigness, willing to be very big, willing to do really extreme, really silly, really wild stuff. You know, when you're asked to sing a song in pig or chicken, you know, it's it's already that you've already crossed that barrier yeah, of right. absurdity. Why hold it back at that point? Right. So I'd already been asked to do things like that, you know. So so animation is is very big. It's very silly. Obviously there are more grounded realistic styles as well now, but you know, for more typical animation, like it's it's huge. And that's that's one of the biggest things when I do coach people too is that they don't realize how big it is um, and how dynamic it is, you know, and, and how much all of those variations in pitch and volume and speed make such a difference in the performance. And so I think the bigness of toys and the fact that I had the opportunity to for six years audition for everything from baby voices to old ladies and animals and creatures and, you know, that gave me the range of to not be afraid to try all this weird stuff. I think that was the foundation and then all of my musical training growing up with two performing parents. So I think that was the foundation. That being said, you know, I really had to work on the acting. That was the thing that I was not up to par with and that I really had to put in the work. And the, so the voices alone are not enough, right? Right. Yep. And even, you know, as recent as, you know, like two or three years ago, I, I did some coaching with um, someone and they're like, you are a vocal gymnast. You know how to do all kinds of crazy stuff with your voice. Now we need to work more on like your turns, you know, the the dynamics of it, you know, yep. finding the comedy, um, all of these other aspects of it. So, so no, I absolutely had to put in the work in terms of the acting side of it because I, um, so you have to have all those elements. Um, the, but the acting is what brings it home. You know, the, the toys, it's, you can be, they're not deep, you know, it's not deep work. Right. Um, it's, and, and, you know, I struggled originally toys, they're like very short lines, you know? So all of a sudden I had a chunk of text and I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to do this big chunk of text. Like I knew how to do like one line at a yeah. time. Yep. <laughs> um, so that was a transition. And during all this time, I started GVAA. <laughs> And and it was so funny because I started it as like something that I felt was really important to because I knew so many good coaches and I wanted to connect them to, to people to be able to have access to quality voiceover coaching. But in some ways, even though what I originally set out to do was was to help other people, I think it helped me right. uh, inadvertently, which I didn't because I owned the company. So I got to watch all the classes. Yep. This is mine. So I was like. Yep. Hey, and so I started watching and I started learning and I made it a point to coach with every single coach we had on the roster. Um, so I could, if people came to me and wanted to know what direction to be pointed at, I could say very specifically, this person is great at this. And so I threw myself into getting all this coaching because I wanted to help other people, but it ended up helping me a lot more than I realized it was going to. And and it's also realizing, oh, I was like, wow, I, I have still a lot to learn too in this area. And um, it was very humbling, but that was really like, again, I, I had a good foundation and then it was just, I just took off. As soon as I had the information I needed, I was just like, Poosh! and you never stop learning. Like I'm still learning, but wow. you know, if you're smart, you never you never stop, right? I mean, the industry's constantly evolving, the styles, the, the what, what people are looking for. So for the voice actor who is not growing up in that environment with the toys and, and, and having that as their training ground, 
is it acting classes? Is it is it improv? Is it uh, working with a specific coach? Like, what 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 is the path that 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 person takes to try to get to this end animation goal that so many voice actors have? Um, actually, I think one of the best uh, ways to train, aside from you know musical theater and plays, which you can do at very like, there's a lot of community college stuff or yeah. small production or productions for kids where you can get involved, and it, it's there's not it's not a costly thing at all. So yeah, just getting into different acting opportunities where you get used to being on stage, you get used to taking direction, you get used to performing on the spot and not getting stressed out. And I'm also a huge believer in musical vocal training, if okay. if you can. Reason being, even if you're not a singer, learning how to use your voice to its full potential, learning how to change your vocal resonance, learning how to change the tone and the timbre of it, learning all these tiny things like, you know, there's so much in vocal technique. It, and you'll notice some of the greatest animation voice actors are singers. Tara Strong, Greg yep. Griffin, you know, they're, they're great singers and they, they know how to use their instrument on such a high level. And I know people get intimidated by that because they're like, oh, I'm not a singer. And I'm like, it's OK. Even if you're not a singer, there's still techniques that you can learn sure. from a singing teacher for just how to control your sound. You know, like, again, if you want to sound bigger or older, like just understanding that, like, if you just open up the back of your throat and you lift up your soft palate and you drop your tongue, all of a sudden it's a completely different sound. Wow. Uh, right? <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. And and that's a tech. That is literally just a technical thing. All I did was drop the back of my tongue. I lifted my soft palate and I feel like I'm yawning the entire time. Wow. That's crazy. You know, and so yep. that but you don't learn. though. So learning, you know, versus like. If I'm going to be really forward, if I'm going to put it behind my nose, all of a sudden it sounds younger and yeah. I didn't even change my pitch. But I didn't make it nasal like French Russia. I didn't go that far, you know. I didn't go that far, but I just put it right there, like right in the front. And I'm all guessing of a it sounds part, really of, bright. part of learning this too is learning how to do it the right way so that you protect your instrument for the long term, right? If you're, if you're not doing it all the right way, I'm guessing you could potentially do some damage, right? Well, right. And that is the advantage of, do, advantage of doing the vocal training because yeah. so something I also do regularly um, and I bring it into my coaching work now to help people not hurt themselves um, and to get the most out of their, their vocal range is um, I've actually been doing taking uh, speech pathology for the past five years. You okay. know, I, I take regular speech pathology um, and because if I'm getting really tired doing a voice, I want to know why, you know, and they're able to help me. They're like, oh, OK, put the placement here. Try this instead. We're going to change this. You have a lot of jaw tension. Let's separate, you know, your jaw and your tongue have fused, basically. So let's separate the two. And so, you know, there's so much that you can get out of a great speech pathologist and a great singing instructor for, for learning how to to use your range in a healthy way. And so, you know, that's all stuff that I bring in when I work with people. So again, you don't have to be a singer. It just teaches you how to use what you have. It's important that people understand this stuff, right? Because it's uh, so many people come in and be like, well, I can do all these characters or I can do these different voices or whatever. And that, that's, a, that's a building block, right? It's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the puzzle on the whole. So I'm guessing that a lot of this top tier animation stuff is coming through agents. So two part question. Part one who are some of the agents or agencies that voice actors should be keeping an eye on uh, potentially for this kind of work? And, uh, you know, do you have any tips for what they could potentially do to be getting on the radar? 
Um, that's a really great question. And I hope I don't forget any agents. Like I'm going to like probably I hope I don't forget anybody like really vital. There are some of the agents that get most of these auditions that have the relationships. The ones that I can think of off the top of my head, the big players, um, Avio Talent, uh, Sandy has a, my agent. She has mm-hmm. an amazing relationship with with Disney, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon. And, and that's something a lot of people don't realize about when you get with people just like, oh, I got a really big LA agent. Yeah, but but do they have the relationships in the areas that you want to work in? Atlas is a, an agency that is very well known. Um, they, again, they're LA and New York, and um, they also have the, a fantastic relationship with those um, with those studios. They they get a ton of work. They have an amazing roster. SBV talent is one that I see a lot. And so, like when I go in, also for callbacks, when you can see everybody's name, like you have to put the agency too. So these are also the ones that I see. Like when I go in and I get the callback and I can see. So like it'll be SVV, it'll be Atlas, um, it'll be AVO, it'll be Vox. Sometimes Dean Panero, sometimes Abrams. Uh, I'm trying to think. I hope I'm, I'm not missing. Oh, CESD mm-hmm. is a big one as well. That's a big one. That's the ones I can think of off the top of my head. But yeah, I, I would say like if you really want to do animation. Definitely Atlas, CESD, AVO, Vox, SBB are the first ones that come to mind for me. Any pro tips for how we get on the radar? I'm assuming we're not just going to start emailing all these people and saying, look at me, look at me, listen to my demo. I'm sure there's a thousand voice actors a day doing that. But are there some smarter ways to go about getting in front of them or, or getting on the radar? You know, it's it's really tough. I've recommended talent to my agent probably at least three or four times and they didn't take anybody I recommended. So just just know that like having somebody there to like yep. refer you doesn't necessarily right. help you all that much, especially if it's another voice actor. You know, if you're a casting director, ah, that yeah, is very sure. different. Yep. So just know asking your voice actor friends to refer you is not necessarily the thing. But if a casting director offers to refer you, Oh my goodness, do that. So I was working with a student like about a month ago and we were preparing for a workshop in front of a major casting director. And I was like, oh, I was like, we need to work before. Like, let's work, prepare all the scripts. So we did it. And I was very excited because, you know, he was like, yeah, it went well. And I was like, okay, great. And then um, like, I think it was like a week later, he called and he was like, they're calling me in for an audition. She called me in. And I was like, yes. So we're like super excited. And so, you know, I, I said, call me right after, tell me how it goes. Yep. And he called me and he said that she said, Oh, and if you're looking for, you know, if you need an agent for animation, you can use my name and I and refer me. And, you you know, these are the agencies I work with the most. And so now he has a door open. He wow. went to a workshop. Yep. So here, here's the steps. He, he worked with an animation coach. Do Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I just want to say, if you go to a, a workshop with a casting director, <laughs> don't go like, yes, you want to go and learn. But like, I would go to that because I want her to know who I am. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and obviously I still have things to learn and I'm sure there's things I would learn in that workshop, but don't go to an workshop with a casting director if you're not ready yet. That's, that's my personal recommendation. Never get a second chance to make that first impression, right? Right. And yeah, maybe you'll see them in a few years later and then you're like way better. But I would say like, do all the other workshops first. There's so many with great voice actors or other, you know, other really excellent coaches. I would say do all of them first. And then when you're like, you know what, I know I'm in a good spot. Then go and and prepare ahead of time with an animation coach, you know, because, again, you know, the the person I was working with had attended many workshops and but he'd never gotten the call until he worked with me right before. And so do the coaching ahead of time, prepare for those opportunities, because that is a one time opportunity. 
they, they put on these workshops all the time. You know, you can go and you can find them and, and that's your chance to shine. And he rocked it. And, and I was like, heck yeah. But so now, you know, he has this casting director referred me to you, you know, and that's something an agent is going to listen to far more than your fellow voice actor friend who happens to be repped there. So, so that's one avenue that you can get in. Honestly, just being amazing, like this is, I mean, that sounds really generic. <laughs> Be amazing. There's a lot of competition um, out there. You've got to have something that makes you stand out, right? Right. So I'm just going to embarrass a friend of mine right now, Michael Schwalbe. Michael Schwalbe is an amazing voiceover talent. He is the only person that I knew, like of my friends that tried to apply to AVO talent who got in. And they were so excited to have him. And he's like, was super pumped. And if you go and you listen to his stuff, I mean, it's incredible. Like he does every genre. And he was also a metal singer. So he has a whole like singing stuff with like opera and metal. And then, you know, on top of it, because of all of his metal training, he does creatures like really stuff that would rip the rest of us up. But he knows how to do it without hurting himself. And so, um, you know, like it is possible to get an L.A. agent, even if you don't live in L.A., if you are at a certain level like that is possible. Um, another talent named Brian Sommer, he also has an L.A. agent and he lives in the Bay Area. He's also willing to fly at a moment's notice. So that's important too. You know, if they need him in LA, you got to be able to pick up and go. But a lot of stuff he gets to just do in his home studio and it's because he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He's one of the best voiceover talents I've ever heard. So if you're at a certain level, it is absolutely not impossible to get into an LA agent, but it is very competitive and it is hard. We have to go there now because you just brought it up about, you know, being in LA or not being in LA or being willing to travel or fly at a moment's notice. You did what a lot of people assume is impossible to do. A few years ago, you left L.A. for upstate New York, but your career has not slowed down at all. And so to a degree, you've debunked the myth that you have to be in L.A. to have access to this work. How did you pull that off, though? Is it because you'd already been there, proven yourself, had the relationships, or is there shifts that are happening in the industry? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I do think the fact that I was in L.A. for 10 years absolutely matters. You know, so I already had a relationship with Nickelodeon. They already knew my stuff. They already knew my home setup. Same thing with these casting directors. You know, I'm working with the same casting directors that I worked with then. Again, there's trust is already built. They they know you. Mm -hmm. So as long as your home studio is at the level where it needs to be, it's it's not it's not an issue. And I, I had talked to my agent and I said, if I move, is this okay? And she said, don't worry about it. Just go. And then I found out I was not the only person who had moved, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of people did, including, um, you know, there are many huge voice actors that don't live in L.A. anymore. I think Darren Norris moved out, I believe. I don't know him super well, um, so that may have changed. But uh, James Arnold Taylor, um, who lives in Tennessee. D. Bradley Baker, his home is mostly in Colorado. He has a home here in, in, oh, not here. Sorry, I keep forgetting I'm not in L.A. anymore. But um, he has a home in L.A. as well. But, you know, he, you know, isn't in L.A. all the time. Um, There are many voice actors where once you establish yourself and then you leave those relationships that you cultivated, that the trust has been built. And I do try to come back to L.A. at least once a year to see people, to have lunches, to, you know, Yep. Go, go in person to the studios um, and see everybody. It's when nurturing is, those relationships, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, when Alex is a little older, I'll probably come back even more often. But he's only three right now. So, but yeah. Have to travel with the three-year-old. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel you on that one. Okay. So 
Disney, Nickelodeon, right? These are like the dreams for a, a lot of people. Obviously, you don't start there. So one of the things that a lot of agents, or at least my understanding is that a lot of agents are looking for is that you're bookable, right? You get some credits. Come to me when you've got some credits. So for the voice actor who has that end goal of Disney or Nickelodeon or these major animation studios, where do they look for the credits now that they can get in order to get to that next level? I actually don't think you necessarily have to have the credits. Really? Yep. And I know of a specific person who did it. So there is a wonderful talent named Courtney Lynn. She uh, worked with us at GVAA, a super hard worker, incredible work ethic, uh, trained with David Rosenthal, Brian Sommer, our team here. And she and I did some coaching stuff more recently. And so we had a chance to chat and, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I also, uh, I decided to interview her when I, before I went to One Voice and gave my presentation because I gave one that about breaking in and standing out in animation okay. because you know, the way I broke into animation is different from how many yep. people broke in. And so I wanted a variety of, of, of stories to bring to my presentation. So Courtney Lynn is a series regular on Nickelodeon's Monster High. She voices the role of Dracula, and she's in every episode. Okay. And Courtney Lynn worked hard. She worked very hard, and she worked very hard for years. You know, and she had little bookings, you know, nothing. She never got her big break. Her, that was her big break. That was her big break. And it was out of like, there was no, like lots of previous credits that did not, that did not happen. Smaller credits. She came out the door and she worked with David on that audition and she booked it. And after that, she just started flying. Cause like once you get into that world too, especially once you start getting into ensemble records and you start getting more comfortable and then you start seeing the level of everyone else, it just makes you step up your game even more. Cause you, everything just starts to click. And then you get the direction that you need. And, you, and so there's, you know, once you're in there, you just start flying because then you you get the world on a whole right. other level. You know, before that, it's all that audition technique and standing out. And it's it's such hard work to just break through. So just, just know, I really don't feel like you have to have a bunch of credits in order to book that big thing. It's really just a matter of not giving up, putting in the work. You know, and, and let me just tell you, like Courtney Lynn, I'm, I don't know if she's going to watch this and be embarrassed, but like, there's a level of work ethic that, that, that people don't realize how much commitment, how many hours every day. And we're not talking about just to the craft. You know, it's about, you know, learning how to edit, getting your studio where it needs to be. Like, yep. you know, she was telling me about something happened early on where the company really loved her. And she was like all excited because they reached out to her. They wanted her to do this thing. And then the studio wasn't where it needed to be. And she was like, never happening to me again. And she just like worked super, super hard to make yep. sure to learn everything there was to know. And so it, it really is just tenacity and work ethic and not giving up. And if you spend long enough doing it and and you are going to the right coaches, you're getting the right information, you're not just spinning your wheels, then it can happen. And she does have a very bookable little voice. She's adorable. Um, she's got a great, bright sound, really just a big personality, but she also worked really hard. So Yes, you can have stepping up credits, but I don't think it's actually necessarily true. Having a good agent where you're getting the audition and then having good coaches behind you, you can absolutely break through on something big. I think one of my first jobs ever was on Doc McStuffins, and I was terrified. I have become very familiar with Doc McStuffins in the last year. and <laughs> I, I have a two-year-old who walks around very frequently with her little Doc McStuffins jacket on, and she walks up and says, Daddy, I have a diagnosis, and she pulls out her <laughs> little book, and I'm like, 
Yeah. Yep. Very familiar with Doc McStuffins. <laughs> Didn't have yep. a clue who Doc was before, but very, very much familiar now. <laughs> yep. Yep. No. So that was one of my first, I think that was like my first job or second job ever in animation. So, wow. and I was with TGMD. I wasn't even with AVO Talent then. I was a smaller agency and, and it was just, you know, if you're the right voice for the right part. And again, it's just sometimes that magic happens, but I think it's a very patient process in the beginning. But once you get going, then again, people start to get to know you. And then once you get on one show, they're like, oh, we have another role. And it saves them money if someone in their cast already voices a second role because they don't have to pay as much. So then they'll send out roles just to the existing cast sometime because then they don't have to get an outside actor. So, you know, everything just snowballs off of itself. You know, it just keeps keeps going once you're in there. It's just breaking through. I want to mention one other way people break through because I did talk about it in my one voice thing now that I'm talking about that. Social media. And I know of two voice actors now that they were so they are social media personalities. They mm-hmm. are, you know, they do entertainment and they do characters on their social media. They created characters for their social media. Um, one of them is Jenny Lorenzo. She's hysterical and she produces these amazing videos and she has a huge following. So casting directors approached her and offered her work and auditions because they love the characters on her social media. And I know of another talent who that just happened to as well. And I can't talk about, you know, the show or anything that, you know, that happened. But so that is also a viable option for getting into animation. You got a worldwide audience at your fingertips for free if if you take advantage of it and, and know what you're doing. So yeah, that's a very valid one too. Social media would be a great place. There's a lot of people that are getting famous because of TikTok or Instagram reels or whatever. Well, Christine, you've come a long way obviously, in your career and, and certainly achieved some incredible heights. But I am curious about one thing. Let's say you have the opportunity to go back 10 or 15 years with the benefit of hindsight. Is there a piece of advice that you would give yourself? Is there something that you would change and, and, and do differently? That's a really good question. You know, I don't know. The journey was what it was, and there's so many things that happened kind of when they needed to happen. You know, honestly, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, w- I wish I had had more guidance earlier in my career. Right. I didn't have anyone. I didn't have any coaching. And it's, and it's one of the reasons. Yeah, I had, I had no one. I had nothing. Um, you know, and my parents weren't voice actors. My mom started to get into it, but I, she really didn't do that much. And, right. you know, I... I did a lot. I just, I didn't have any guidance. So that's something I would have loved to be in the animation world a lot younger. And I think I could have, but I didn't have anyone even telling me that this was a a viable thing to do, you know, with, with my life um, and, or where I needed to be or how to, to train for it. It was really a, a kind of meandering journey. And a lot of it was based on, you know, like, like anything, you know, you fail at something or things are not working and then you make a choice to go somewhere else. And yep. so I think if I had known, if I had in hindsight, I would have sought out more mentors and coaching earlier and guidance. But that being said, I also wasn't committed to doing voiceover for the rest of my life. I, I didn't know that it was going to be, I had yeah. several passions. So yep. I was a professional dancer, which a lot of people don't know, but after my accident, that was not an option. So I wanted to be a dancer for, for, you know, that's what I wanted to do for my early career. But life decided that that was not going to happen. And so, but life took me where it needed to go. So, so yeah, I do wish I'd had more mentorship early, but, you know, I really did find that when I 
founded GVAA and then accidentally hired a bunch of mentors and then they helped me. Well, that brings it, that leads us perfectly into where I wanted to go, which was, you know, you founded GVAA. You, you talked about how that ended up being an incredible benefit, not only for every voice actor who participated, but for you as well, watching from the sidelines. Yeah. I know you took a little bit of break from the coaching, but now you're coming back. So let, let's talk a little bit about that to wrap it up. I mean, you've given a ton of amazing advice on the animation world, but you also talk about you know, if I'd had a mentor, if I had somebody guiding me a little bit sooner. And so I know that's something that you can do for other voice actors now through your coaching and drawing from all of your years of experience. So talk a little bit about what you've got to offer from a coaching standpoint. You know, that is probably one of the main reasons why I do feel passionate about it is because I didn't have that access to the to the information that I needed. And, and I love helping people because I didn't have the help I needed. And so I took a break for a while. You know, when GVA first started, it, everything just exploded, especially when we made the rate guide. And um, I kind of, it was so much and I was so young. <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I don't think I was really ready mentally to, mm-hmm. to take on like leading a company in that same way. Um, and so, um, and I discovered that when I coach, I really, I tend to put other people first all the time. It's just kind of how my brain is. And so when I'm working with people, I would always put myself like last and so I wasn't focusing on my animation because I was right. thinking about my students all the time, which is not a bad thing. It's like a good thing in a coach, obviously. But um, but I realized I, I really wanted to put that time in. So I did. Co- I stopped for about six years, just focused on animation. I started coaching again because here in New York, again, I don't have the community of voiceover that I voice actors that I had. And I love like well, like we discussed before, I love relationships. Mm-hmm. I love connections and. Yep. And I love helping. I love helping so much. It's just, and getting to share my passion. And I had so much more to share now because I had six years, you know, six, seven years of just like, just in the trenches doing it to come and share. And that's been so exciting because sometimes you don't even realize how much you've grown or learned until you're passing it on to to someone else and and formulating it out loud and, and, you know, trying to describe it. So I am coaching again. I'm not coaching a ton, but I am accepting students now. Um, and people can find me on the Global Voice Acting Academy site. I do private coaching and then I do two workouts a month for the GBA membership. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it's just a, it's a, I think it's about $59 a month and you get two coach workouts. You get, you get a whole, a huge range of, of things. You can check it out on the site. Well, we'll put that in the show notes so people can check that as, out as well if uh, if anybody's interested. Well, Christina, this has been amazing. You got a, a really powerful story. Uh, I love one of my favorite things that I've been doing lately in talking to voice actors on the podcast and starting to uncover some of these stories is learning all the different ways that people have come at the industry, right? All, all the different backgrounds and, and there's not one path, right? There's not a guaranteed path straight to whatever it is that you're looking for, but people come from different places, different backgrounds, different situations, overcoming different struggles, you know, approaching things different ways. And so it, I hope that that alone is inspiring for people to, you know, some people are going to be like, oh, yeah, she had it easy because she grew up with the, you know, grew up in the studios from eight years old. But I mean, you've had to work hard and you've had to overcome struggle and and you've built this thing and you've done the impossible and moved away from L.A. and kept doing the thing. And so that in and of itself, I think, is an inspiration for a lot of people as well. So I'm, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to come and, and share a little bit of that and, and helping some people who are working towards that animation dream. Yeah, I, I wanted to say 
like, yes, even though I got my start in L.A. and I think that helped, I don't think it's impossible Mm -hmm. to live somewhere else and get an L.A. agent as long as you're willing to fly if they ask you to. You know, I've seen people do that now. So, no, it really isn't a barrier. Um, But, yeah, so that was just the last thing I wanted to mention. But, but Mark, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you to your guests and your following for wanting to hear my story. um, It's really fun to come and talk with you today. Right on. Thank you, Christine. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. I really truly believe that this interview, that Christina's story, is going to give hope to so many of you who just want to get into animation, who just want to be able to do character work, but maybe you thought it wasn't possible because of where you lived, or maybe you thought it wasn't possible because you didn't have the right connections. I think Christina proves that where you live doesn't necessarily matter. I think Christina proves that it's possible to build relationships and build the connections that you need, that you don't have to automatically have an in. And I really do hope that you are inspired and motivated to keep moving towards your character, animation, and toy dreams, if those are the dreams that you have for your voiceover business. If you've enjoyed this episode, would you please do me a favor and let us know? Post it in your Instagram stories and make sure that you tag me at Mark Scott. And would you do one other quick favor for me? Leave a five-star review wherever you enjoyed this episode. Let other people know about how much you're learning from the Everyday Vopreneur podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one. The Everyday Vopreneur podcast. Available everywhere fine podcasts are given away for free. Mostly, we think. You have a great website, right? Well, make sure you host it at some place that doesn't suck. Hey, it's Brad Newman, fellow VO pro for 28 years and owner of UpperLevelHosting.com. People ask why us, and that's simple. We make it easy, respect your time, save you money, and just make all the magic happen. You don't need to know all the tech stuff when it comes to hosting your website. We got you. Ask around tens of thousands of client interactions later and six years of amazing customer service and not a single negative complaint ever. UpperLevelHosting.com. And scene. And that's a wrap. Thanks for hanging in. Thanks for hanging out. Want more VOPreneur goodness? Jump online at VOPreneur.com.